It's been just over a decade since the United Nations adopted the Canadian-led doctrine known as the Responsibility to Protect. Trucks burn at the end of a dirt track in Kaya State, southern Myanmar. After the fires have died down, other videos show charred bodies in the wreckage. R2P, it's aimed at avoiding mass atrocities and genocides, and yet the world has since witnessed the terrible toll on civilians in Syria and Libya, to name just two. Among those missing, two workers from the charity Save the Children, who've been distributing aid to internally displaced people in the area. So, is R2P still alive, or basically dead, dead, dead? Hi there, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and have a recommendation about someone you think we should have on to share their voice and journey with the world, by all means, let us know. It could be an aid worker, monastic, author, journalist, scholar, resistance leader, really anyone with some tie or another to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. To offer up a name, go to our website, insightmyanmar.org, and let us know. But for now, just sit back and take a listen to today's episode. Scott, who is a research associate at the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. And we're going to be speaking about a term that many people in and around Myanmar have been talking about quite some time, R2P. So Liam, thanks so much for joining us and breaking down this topic for us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about R2P in Myanmar with you today. Yeah, so let's start right ahead with the basics. Uh, can you just define for the listeners, what is R2P? Yeah, so, you know, R2P, or the responsibility to protect, is an international norm that the UN unanimous, unanimously adopted in, in 2005, and it really seeks to, you know, protect populations around the world from uh, atrocity crimes, which are uh, genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. So it's this, you know, really a cornerstone of atrocity prevention as this really important, you know, global principle, um, you know, international norm in, in preventing atrocities and, um, you know, preventing people from, from atrocity crimes. Mm, right. Thanks for that. And can you tell us the history and context of how the concepts around R2P were developed? Yeah, so, you know, R2P really was, you know, kind of, I, I kind of view it as being established almost by necessity, you know, kind of in the wake of international failures in responding to 
atrocities, namely in Rwanda with the, the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, as well as atrocity crimes in, in former Yugoslavia. And, you know, R2P was, or, and it is still, you know, an effort to combat and, you know, that historic um, or that pattern of international indifference and international inaction to to atrocity crimes, and that it, it really sought to bring an end to to that indifference and that inaction that that really had characterized the international community's response to to atrocity crimes for for quite some time. So there are three main pillars um, of of the responsibility to to protect, and the first pillar is really interesting because it's it's inward facing it's it's internal it's looking domestically at how countries how governments can protect their own populations from from atrocity crime so it really says that you know every state every country has has a, a responsibility to protect its populations from from these four atrocity crimes and you know that's really important because it speaks to this responsibility that all countries have to build, you know, a really a national resilience to to atrocity crimes through a number of, of different mechanisms, a number of different strategies to to protect their own populations from atrocity crimes. And I think when we when we talk about R2P, we often forget about, you know, that first pillar. It's often talked about in terms of, you know, foreign affairs or or how, you know, one country is um, responding to atrocity crimes in, or, or risks of atrocity crimes in in another country, but you know, RGP really starts at home. It starts with um, building up a country's own ability and, and capacity to to prevent atrocities and to respond to atrocities. Um, but then you get to, to pillar two, and and that speaks to how you know the the international community in general has has a responsibility to 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 encourage and to work with other countries to um, help them protect their 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 populations from atrocity crimes from those four atrocity crimes. And then the the third pillar is that. You know, if a state is is failing to uphold their responsibility to protect, whether it's because of um, a lack of capacity to protect their people from atrocity crimes, or if it is because you know that country is a perpetrator itself of um, atrocity crimes, or if they're you know just unwilling to to uphold that that responsibility to protect, then then the international community has a responsibility to to work to to protect those people from from mass atrocities. And there are, you know, at, at every level, there are, there are different, you know, things in, you know, what we call the R2P toolbox to, like I said, with, with you know, Pillar 1, with building up, you know, a country's national resilience to preventing atrocities, you know, internally, um, all the way through, you know, Pillars 2 and, and 3, um, different strategies for, um, for preventing atrocities and for, for combating ongoing atrocities. Um, in, in that regard. So you're working at the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. Can you tell us a bit about the mission of this organization? Yeah, so the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect was founded in 2008. Um, so that is, you know, that three years after the, the principle was, you know, adopted by, by the UN. And 
you know, our core mission really is to make sure is to really, you know, institutionalize the responsibility to protect and make, you know, make the responsibility to protect a reality in, in the international system. And we do that through monitoring ongoing atrocities or, um, ongoing situations where there is a, a risk of atrocities. Um, we conduct research on, on those countries. We, um, work to work we engage in advocacy at primarily at the UN level, both in, in New York at the Security Council, as well as in, in Geneva at the Human Rights Council to really encourage states to, to you uphold the responsibility to protect in how they respond to um, different situations around the world. So we recommend strategies to them. We encourage them to, to do certain things to you know to do certain things in their response to to different atrocities or or to respond to them in the first place um working with other and and also helping them build their like i said going back to pillar one helping countries and build their their national capacity that that national resilience to to atrocity crimes Mm -hmm, right and in your organization's mission statement it's written quote we also intend to commit ourselves as necessary and appropriate to helping states build capacity to protect their populations from genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity, mm-hmm. and to assisting those which are under stress before crisis and conflict breaks out, end quote, similar mm-hmm. to what you laid out just now. And these are really powerful words. And now focusing a bit more specifically on Myanmar, can you explain how, in what ways you're proceeding with that mission statement uh, on the ground uh, to Myanmar specifically following the coup? Yeah, um, that's a really important question. I think if possible, I'd like to give just a little bit more, I guess, I think about context about, sure. you know, following the coup. What we saw mm-hmm. was, you know, obviously the there was an unprecedented um you know, unprecedented protests all around all around the country, and what we saw there was also an unprecedented, you know, level of of people really evoking the responsibility to protect as they protested. Whether that was on on T-shirts, whether that was on signs, whether that was you know writing it on on roads and things like that. Really, this unprecedented level of calling for the international community to uphold their responsibility to protect, because clearly. Um, the military was not doing that. Um, and they were calling for, you know, the, the protection that they, they deserved under this, under this international principle. And I think that, you know, I think that really demonstrates an important, um, evolution in the responsibility to protect since, since it was founded, um, in 2005, you know, it hasn't even been, it, it's it's almost twenty years old. Um, this this principle, and over the past, um, you know, since two thousand five, it's really uh, you know opened up. We write about this a lot in, in a lot of a lot of our publications, but it's opened up from you know something that has been primarily used by by policymakers at the UN or at governments, but really you know something that was exclusive to the elite. And it has been, I think it's opened up to something that civil society and even the individual um, can, can really evoke and, and employ. And I think that, that, you know, right after, you know, following the coup is 
really, really epitomized that um, with all of these protesters evoking and calling for R2P. Um, so I just wanted to, I think, I think that's really important context just to kind of, as, sure. as we think about R2P in, in mm-hmm. Myanmar, that, you know, Myanmar's people were, ha- have been calling for it, you know, since the coup. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. Um, but in terms of main things that, you know, what, what falls under R2P when it comes to, to, to Myanmar and what we want the international response to Myanmar to look for, to, to look like, um, I mean, there are, there are a bunch of things that, we, that we've been calling for and that we've been advocating for. But, you know, first and foremost, the international community really has failed to uphold their, their um, responsibility to, to protect the, the people of Myanmar following, following the coup in, on, on February 1st, 2021. And that, that especially falls, I think, on the, the Security Council, the, the, the UN Security Council. I think about, you know, what the what Myanmar's military, what the Tatmadaw most wants and, you know, what is, uh, what, what they want and also what is allowing them to continue perpetrating atrocities across the country. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the first person to, you know, name these, the, the three things that, that they most want, but it's, um, you know, it's money, um, it's uh, weapons, it's arms and it's legitimacy. You know, those are the three main things that they want. And it's those things that, um, access to those that allows them to to continue perpetrating atrocities uh, against against their own people responding to to the coup um, under r2p should really be addressing those those three things and you see it in a few different ways so what should have happened uh, the Security Council should have imposed an arms embargo for one thing to to limit the flow of weapons into Myanmar because to to really limit the the military's ability to to perpetrate atrocities against against their own people, um, the special rapporteur on on the human rights situation in Myanmar just put out a report actually um, on on weapons transfers and, and and the flow of weapons into Myanmar um, since 2018 and also since the coup, and he identifies four countries as as ha- having sold weapons to. Um, to Myanmar since the coup, and that's that's China, Russia, Serbia, and and India as as the four countries that have sold weapons to Myanmar since the coup. And you know, obviously, it goes without saying, Russia and China are both um, on the Security Council, members of the P five, um, with a veto. Um, so they would be able to, you know, if a resolution came up about you know an, an arms embargo. Um, they could very well, and, and it's likely that they would, you know, veto that. Um, but, you know, still talking about an arms embargo, and then I'll move on to something else in, in a minute, you know, the, the United Kingdom on the Security Council is, you know, what's called the pen holder. So they are the country that would table a resolution on Myanmar, and they haven't done that yet. You know, they haven't, you know, tried to you know, go to a vote on, on a resolution about, about Myanmar. And I think, yeah, it's definitely likely it's, it's almost certain that I, that, you know, China and or Russia would veto a resolution on, on an arms embargo or, or anything else of that nature. Um, but I think it's still really important for other, you know, like-minded members of the security council to, 
to try. I mean, I, it, there, it, there's, you know, really, I don't think there's any harm in trying to, to do what mm-hmm. they can um, with, uh, you know, the tools that they have available. You know, despite the deadlock, despite the gridlock that, that you know, is really plaguing the Security Council on Myanmar and on a host of other um, issues related to atrocities and related to other things, um, you know, tabling this resolution, even if it did fail, would send a signal to the people of Myanmar that the international community hasn't forgotten about them. And it would also clarify where everyone stands, because so far the Security Council has only met, they've only met privately on on Myanmar, which means, you know, we don't really know. I mean, we can guess, we can kind of assume. Um, Mm -hmm. And it is pretty clear where each country stands on Myanmar. Mm -hmm. But if, you know, there was a vote on a resolution that would really clarify, you know, where each country falls uh, when it comes to, to Myanmar. And it would force, and then it would, if it's clear that, you know, nothing's going to happen at the Security Council, um, then if something were vetoed, then it would provide more of an impetus, I think, for action on more of a bilateral capacity outside of the Security Council, if it becomes clear that, you know, the Security Council won't be able to, to do anything substantial, anything with teeth. Yeah, so why do you think that is, that the UK has not taken a stand to be able to hold the countries accountable and everything has been done in such privacy and lack of transparency a year into this? You know, I think... I think a couple things and you know one I think I want to preface this by saying you know the United Kingdom is one of the biggest supporters of you know such a a champion of of human rights a champion of the responsibility to protect Um, and that goes for you know a lot of countries but you know specifically I'm not trying to you know disparage what you know the, the United Kingdom because they, they do a lot, you know, especially compared to other countries when it comes to human rights and when it comes to atrocity prevention. But, you know, at the same time, um, I think when I, specifically on this, uh, I think part of it comes down to not wanting to risk a veto because that could reflect poorly on, on the United Kingdom or on other, other countries. I don't, I still think that it's worth it. Um, obviously, um, there's also, you know, some other things that I've heard, uh, other concerns is that, you know, if it, if there were a veto, then that could be interpreted by, by Myanmar's military as, you know, tacit support for the military. Um, so there are a lot of factors going, you know, going into it. And this is just theorizing, of course, you know, I can't, um, those are, you know, the likely reasons that, um, the United Kingdom has has been wary of, you know, tabling a resolution such as, uh, you know, on, on this at the at the Security Council. Um, but I still think I still think it's it's worth risking the veto to both send a message to Myanmar's people that the international community that the UN hasn't forgotten about them, and also to to really clarify where where everyone has where everyone is on on the subject of Myanmar at, at the Security Council. What are your thoughts on the relationship between R2P and the formation of these PDFs across the country? R2P is a political commitment. It's a political norm. It isn't a, you know, is it isn't a legal obligation. So if a country does not uphold 
the the responsibility to protect either you know domestically or um, internationally, there aren't any consequences for that because it's not they aren't legally bound to to uphold it. So it really falls on them on political will. It falls on their capacity to to uphold the the responsibility to protect. And I think that speaks back to when I was talking you know a little bit ago about how following the coup there was this unprecedented you know um, call among protesters in Myanmar for the international community to uphold the responsibility to protect and how that shows that R2P has really opened up to something that even the individual um, can can call for and can work toward and I think perhaps the the formation of of PDFs could be another example of could perhaps be another example of that. Mm, right, right. Thanks for that. Uh, in the on your website, you issued a list of action points that you'd like to see implemented to resolve the ongoing crisis in Myanmar. This includes everything from the glo- a global arms embargo from the UN Security Council to the Tamara providing unfettered humanitarian access to, quote, universal jurisdiction being applied by the global community. Uh, I don't think that anyone reasonable would have any issue with any of these suggested actions. However, in Myanmar, there's this growing frustration that this just kind of ends up as more lists, more calls for action, more statements. And at the same time, nothing is currently happening while people are continuing to get arrested and killed every day. Mm -hmm. So for many uh, in the country and advocates outside, it's really hard to read documents like this with any real hope anymore, to be honest. So what words would you have for those that are growing increasingly desperate and hopeless by this global failure that we're seeing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. And, and, and thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I think first, I, of course, share those frustrations with the failure of the international community in general to to respond effectively and substantially to to the ongoing crisis in Myanmar. Um, but of course, recognize that at the same time, you know, as I sit here talking to you from my apartment in Washington, D.C., you know, I'll never truly understand what it's like um, for protesters in Myanmar and for people experiencing, you know, what they're experiencing on the ground. Um, and I, I just want to note that, you know, to, to recognize that as, you know, that's the, you know, the perspective that I'm, you know, bringing here. Um, I think, though, you know, even though the Security Council has manifestly failed to uphold the responsibility to protect, I think what still gives me hope is remembering that, you know, the responsibility to protect is, it doesn't have any agency of its own. Do you know what I mean? You know, it it is a norm, but it isn't an actor. And so that means that it falls upon, you know, the international community to uphold it and to to take actions that that uphold and institutionalize R2P. And what that means, I think, is that, you know, R2P really will only ever be as as good as the actors that implement it. And I think one year since the coup, I think it's become increasingly clear that you know, bilateral action in response to 
the ongoing atrocities in Myanmar is increasingly necessary and increasingly urgent. And I think one instant, one recent example of you know increasing bilateral, um, I guess, bilateral response to to the to you know the ongoing crisis is that the European Union recently you know imposed a new slate of sanctions, and you know that included um, sanctions against. MOGE, the, the Myanmar oil and, and gas enterprise, which is a state-backed, you know, oil and gas company. And that goes back to, I promise I'll circle back to, 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 you know, the point of the question, but that goes back to, you know, one of the things that the, the, the military needs to continue perpetrating its crimes is, is access to funds and sanctioning, you know, the oil and gas sector where the military gets a substantial amount of, of its funds, of revenue, to continue perpetrating these crimes. And by sanctioning the oil and gas sector, by sanctioning, you know, MOGE, um, the European Union has, um, in this really important way, sought to, has, you know, worked to, to limit the, the Myanmar military's um, access to funds and therefore its ability to, to perpetrate atrocities. And I think that was a really, really important development um, because it shows that, or it's an example of enhanced bilateral response to the ongoing crisis in Myanmar in the absence of effective and substantial response from the Security Council. And also, which I haven't brought up yet, but I think it's really important to discuss as well, is ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. So in the absence of you know effective and substantial response from these multilateral organizations. Um, I think I'm hopeful that there is going to be increased bilateral, bilateral response to, to the crisis. And I think just the recent example that, 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 I, that I flagged of, of the European Union um, and, and that recent slate of sanctions, I think that's an example of, of that. And that gives me hope. Um, I know it's small. Um, you know, there are definitely far more bad days and, and steps backward than, than good days and steps forward. Um, but uh, I think that is, you know, one, one positive development. And I think that um, that is something that, you know, I will, I, and I think the, you know, partner organizations that I work with will, you know, continue to to increasingly call for. Of course, we won't forget, you know, we'll continue to call for action from, from the UN, from the Security Council, from ASEAN, um, from these multilateral organizations. But uh, it's especially important now to, to, work, to, to, to work for that, uh, to push for that, that bilateral response. I hope that answers your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I, I have a follow-up question. It's actually not my follow-up question. This is a question coming from a member of my audience that fits in well here. Um, the person asks, uh, why even bother with R2P if it can't be used and applied effectively? And then added, this is a serious question. So they want to they, they, they wanted to indicate this is not a rhetorical question. This is not a criticism. This is a, a, a serious question of what is even the purpose of talking or working towards R2P if it is just a theory and it's not able to be used or applied effectively, at least as far as we've seen over a year now? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, first, I, I do take that question very seriously. Well, I definitely think that this question is, you know, I think it's a really serious question. And I think it's, you know, a valid concern, considering um, how, how poor the international community's response to the crisis in Myanmar has been over the past year. And I think first, um, my first point is, you know, reiterating, reiterating that, you know, although R2P is, is imperfect, um, it really will only ever be as effective as practitioners make it. Um, so, you know, any, you know, the faults really aren't, I don't think the faults are with the doctrine. They aren't faults with the norm. I think they're faults with the international communities, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the failure to uphold R2P as a, you know, as a function of unwillingness or lack of capacity to, to do so. Um, so I think that's important to flag. I think what's also, you know, really important to note is that, you know, R2P is the cornerstone of atrocity, is a cornerstone of atrocity prevention. It is an extremely important, you know, political agenda in a way of atrocity prevention. And there isn't anything else, you know, like it. So I guess even this might not be, you know, a super satisfying re response, but, you know, when I think of, you know, okay, if, you know, R2P isn't effective, at least in the case of Myanmar, well, you know, what else is there when it comes to atrocity prevention? And, you know, that might not be the most, I, I, I th so I think that, I think that's also, you know, important to keep in mind that, you know, we don't need more institutions, we don't need more, you know, norms, we don't need more, you know, legal frameworks for this. R2P is, you know, it, it I think it really is essential still in, in responding to the, you know, ongoing atrocities in Myanmar, because, you know, as just, an, you know, another point is, you know, what else is there to, you know, there's this global, RTP is, you know, it's a global commitment to, you know, respond to atrocity crimes. And, you know, without that global commitment, without that, you know, moral imperative to respond to atrocity crimes, what else is there? Um, you know, we still need it. Um, if there isn't, you know, that global imperative, what else can, at least, um, you know, from my work, you know, what else do I you know, it's some, it's so crucial in, you know, my advocacy work to point to, you know, the responsibility to protect, to remind countries that they made this commitment to uphold the responsibility to protect. They made this commitment to protect people, their own people and all people from atrocity crimes. So if you can't point to, you know, this concrete principle, this concrete international norm, that then, you know, I don't, I, I struggle to, to think of what else really there, there is. You talk about how R2P is only as good as the practitioners are able to follow it and able to respond. And of course, by practitioners, you're talking about the world actors, the organizations, uh, UN, ASEAN, as well as uh, powerful countries, regional countries or powerful actors in the world. Uh, as far as NUG goes or activists on the ground, is there anything that the national unity government can do to support or bring about or encourage R2P or are they really helpless? And 
just waiting, hopefully, that others will pick up the cause. What I think is really important to note, and, you know, responding to this, I think of how, you know, following the coup, Dr. Sasa, who is, uh, you know, as one example, who's currently um, the union minister of the Ministry of International Cooperation for the NUG, you know, he, for one, evoked the responsibility to protect in, in urging the United Nations to to respond to um, the crisis in Myanmar. And so I think that that's one example of what the National Unity Government, you know, can and I think is doing, um, is, you know, evoking that language. I mean, I think language is super important um, when it comes to the responsibility to protect. And I think using using that R2P language, using that atrocity prevention language is, is crucial because it, for one, and I think it's really important, is that it reminds the international community of this response, of this, you know, this commitment that, that they made. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, and then I think it can also, you know, evoking R2P in, in general terms, but then also, which, you know, I think the NUG has also done, is being, you know, specific in, in, in what specific, in, in what particular um, tools of, of R2P they, they want the international community to, to employ. Like I said, with with arms embargoes, with sanctions on on oil and gas, with depriving the the military of the legitimacy the, the legitimacy that it craves on the international stage, and I think the national unity government is I think they're doing that, and I think that you know even if it's not necessarily under the um, framework of you know saying we should you know you should do this because you know R two P says so. You know, even if they aren't necessarily thinking about it in terms of R2P, you know, it still falls under R2P. And I think that's that, you know, the same goes more broadly for, you know, a lot of countries in, in whether it's policy or laws or, or things like that. You know, that is, you know, a way of upholding R2P, even if countries aren't necessarily thinking about it in those terms. Um, so I think that's, I think, I, just to, you know, note that. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. I, I, I okay. guess um, I'm just reflecting on that. I, I guess, you know, you, you referenced how uh, Dr. Sasa has has used the term uh, RGP in talking to the UN and, and other talks he's given. Um, and it, it, it would, uh, I wonder if that's all he can do. I wonder if he simply can remind people about it, invoke the the meaning and the purpose of it, but then ultimately it does fall back to somewhat of a helpless state that if those words go, if those words fall on deaf ears and they go unheeded, that perhaps there's nothing more to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, you know, I understand that criticism and, you know, I definitely, you know, I empathize with that criticism in, and I think, you know, we wrote about this in, in one publication, but, you know, after, you know, obviously after the coup, I, I've said this already, you know, protesters were evoking R2P in um, massive numbers. Um, I, at least, maybe this hasn't been reported in the media as much, maybe I just haven't seen it, um, but I haven't seen protesters re- in, in recent months evoking R2P, at least not in the scale that, that they did at the beginning of the this crisis, you know, fall, you know, in February, in March, and April. Um, 
And I think that, you know, I think, you know, tying back to your point on Dr. Sasa, I think that is in, in part because perhaps those, you know, calls fell upon, you know, international, the ears of an indifferent international community or an international community that perhaps will not entirely indifferent. And I don't think it is entirely indifferent. I think, you know, there are several countries, you know, when I think of the, the Security Council, um, they aren't, you know, they, they care very much, but, you know, because of, you know, perhaps a more accurate way of, of framing it is, you know, those calls fell upon not an indifferent international community, but at least in the Security Council, you know, a deadlocked or, a, you know, a gridlocked Security Council. Um, but in terms of, you know, what other things, the, you know, beyond just, you know, calling for, you know, R2P, I mean, to a certain degree, you know, uh, I guess, you know, a lot of what, you know, the work that, that we do is, you know, at the Global Center, it's, you know, working with, you know, states, you know, in a lot of, in, in you know, behind the scenes advocacy to, to, to work with them and to encourage, you know, certain responses to ongoing atrocities. Um, and obviously those responses fall under, you know, the, the, the norm of, of R2P. But, you know, the Global Center isn't, you know, we don't have the capacity either to, you know, a lot of people say, you know, invoking R2P by, you know, for instance, sending in peacekeepers. You know, we don't have, we obviously don't have that, you know, capacity as, as an NGO. You know, don't think we should disparage the value of, you know, the NUG you know, evoking, you know, calling for, you know, the international community to uphold the responsibility to protect both, you know, publicly and public statements and things like that, but also in um, those, you know, behind the scenes, private, private meetings and private, private conversations. I think, I, re I really do think that that goes a long way. I really do think that is, that is effective. Right. And you had mentioned how you haven't seen so many uh, RTP signs or calls for RTP lately as you did at the beginning, which I think is very true. And I think this also shows us the narrative and the movement of uh, what the pro protests have done and where they've gone. Uh, I think this also connects back to that relationship be between R2P and the PDF groups that is still trying to be defined and understood. And I think that uh, among Burmese activists, there, there is, there was this, this call and this plea for R2P or support of mm -hmm. any kind. And mm -hmm. for whatever reason, whether, whether it was indifference, whether it was gridlock, uh, short attention span, uh, domestic mm -hmm. problems somewhere else, whatever, whatever the reason was, because there, there was no R2P that was coming, uh, they, there was a realization in the country that, that, it would be foolish to continue to hope for support from any other body and that they needed to rely on themselves. And because they were facing a foe that only spoke one language and that language was violence and aggression, mm -hmm. that this is the only language they could speak back in order to protect their lives and their rights and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that there's a direct inverse proportion between the, uh, the activists uh, claiming R2P and pleading for R2P 
And on the other hand, the formation of the PDF groups. I think the formation of the PDF groups can be, uh, when many years from now, the history of this whole thing is told, I think that it will it'll show pretty conclusively that those PDF groups were started to take shape as the hope for R2P started to fade away. And as people started to realize no one is going to save us, then there started to be a uh, an exploration of how do we save ourselves. And, and that led to uh, what we see now, which some are calling an impending civil war. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I don't know where... You know, there's no, there's no real good answers here. There's no, not even really any good questions. This, mm-hmm. this is just characterizing how things have been and, and where we're at. Mm. And uh, and I suppose the one one way to look at this, or one thing to ask, is does this mean the ship for R two P in Myanmar has sailed? Is is are are we past that point? Most of, I think, the fact, as you noted, that calls for R two P are no longer coming out of Myanmar mm-hmm. in any real sizable way as it was before. As you've noted in your letters, you have pictures on your website. You referenced in this in this talk the. That uh, that these that, that individuals and organizations within Myanmar were referencing it maybe really for one mm-hmm. of the first time that it came in public vernacular of uh, of expressing and calling for this, and that is now dropped. Referenced in the question that I asked a, a moment ago, why someone in the country asking why bother with even talking about RTP if it can't be used and applied effectively? And so, if um, if there's been this kind of turn inside the country that. Uh, that uh, that that has felt like there's no one coming to our aid. Uh, R two P is not going to manifest. We need to find those resources ourselves. Uh, not mm-hmm. to say that if suddenly R two P were to come, that it wouldn't be welcomed, open mm-hmm. arms, and many people in the country. But that at least the the hope of it, the expectation of it, has that's left the barn. So um, I wonder mm-hmm. what you think of that, and 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 from your standpoint, where you're still advocating and working for R two P in DC, what what you think the prospects or possibilities of that are? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's, I think that's really great analysis. Um, you know, I think, I mean, first and foremost, it saddens me, you know, a great deal to, you know, think about that, you know, those calls for the responsibility to protect really went, you know, unanswered by, by the international community in, um, in an effective and, in substantial way, um, and I think perhaps, you know, I think it is perhaps. I think perhaps. I mean, the, perhaps the way that I think about it in terms of you know this inverse relationship. I mean, I don't know. I think it is, you know, as you know, protests were you know ongoing and and gaining you know momentum as you know the international community just you know, failed to do anything substantial. Um, I agree with you. I do think that, you know, that's when, you know, you see, you know, increase these PDFs, you know, really starting to form across the country. Um, and going back to, so, you know, going back to your question um, of, you know, is it still worthwhile? I think just to clarify your question is, you know, is it still worthwhile to, you know, call for R2P and, you know, is hope of R2P lost? Um, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I think first of all, you know, my first 
response to that is, you know, I think if we abandon our 2P, if we abandon the responsibility to protect when it comes to Myanmar, then I think that, I really do think then in some ways that would be letting the Tatmadaw win. And I think that abandoning, you know, R2P would, would be a concession to, to the military. So beyond that, um, beyond that, for, you know, I think that might be more, you know, symbolic, but more concretely, I don't, you know, going back to, you know, I, I mentioned recent EU sanctions. Um, you know, there, there have been a slate of, of sanctions recently um, from, from a number of different countries. Um, that does fall under, that is an example of, you know, the responsibility to protect. You know, they might not be as effective as, as we would like them to be. They might not be on the specific industries we would like them to be. Namely, of course, you know, oil, gas, timber, um, etc. cetera. Um, but that is still, you know, a manifestation of, of these countries upholding the responsibility to protect. You know, I also think of, you know, companies like, um, you know, Chevron and that, that recently, um, or not, I, I suppose it's a couple of weeks ago now, but, um, withdrew, has withdrawn from, from Myanmar, uh, over, you know, the human rights abuses there. You know, I think that that speaks to, you know, the responsibility of, you know, the corporate, of you know, corporations to, you know, really look at their role in, in all of this. And I think that, you know, those recent developments of, you know, more, you know, oil and gas companies, international oil and gas companies withdrawing from the country, um, I think that is, you know, a positive development as, as well. And I think that, you know, in some ways, I think, yeah, I think that does fall under, you know, R2P as well. So we are still, you know, I think, so I, I, I cite those examples as, um, you know, in defense of, you know, maintaining calls for R2P because, you know, we are seeing these instances, albeit small, albeit certainly, certainly insufficient and inadequate to effectively combat the junta, um, they're still there. And, you know, there's still a response. And I think we need to, you know, I think when it comes to R2P, you know, a lot of times, you know, a common, a lot of, you know, I think a, a misconception about R2P is thinking only about it in terms of R2P meaning intervention of either peacekeepers or, you know, boots on the ground um, intervention. Um, a lot, that's, that's you know, that isn't, a lot of times that's not what most of the times I think that's really not what R2P means but when we don't see it in, in that way we kind of think that that means R2P has, has failed because it's not you know manifesting in the ways that that we think it should or, or the, the ways that the only ways that we think it can but I think that we do see R2P in, in those, those minor ways um, and I think that you know recognizing and perhaps applauding is, I think applauding is, is too strong of a word, but I think I'll leave it at, you know, recognizing those, those small steps um, and as, as small successes in, in the response. You know, if we only, if, you know, I think 
if we only talk about, you know, the response to, you know, the crisis in Myanmar, but also, the, you know, the response to any, you know, crisis, if you only talk about it in terms of, you know, all of it as, as a failure, then I think that, you know, that makes it harder to, you know, move forward because then it's kind of, you know, a mentality of, you know, well, what, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. Um, when in fact there is a lot that you can do. And I think by, you know, recognizing the small steps forward is, can be fodder for, you know, bigger steps and, and more impactful steps and more impactful, you know, decisions. Um, and so I think that, that, it, you know, I think that, you know, that's my way of saying that or, or arguing, you know, in favor of, you know, the fact that there is still, I think there is 100%, um, you know, still hope and, um, for, you know, a, for RGP guiding, you know, centrally guiding the international response to, to this crisis, um, yeah, thanks for that. I really appreciate that kind of nuanced view that's not looking in terms of failure or success and defining success mainly as <clears throat> UN or other boots on the ground that are that are actually engaged in fighting and looking at these other aspects of where where support can come and where um, w- what forms protection can take place. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, one thing I'm thinking is that this failure on the part of the international community it's not only impacting lives in the present, but it's endangering so many more going forward. And mm. I, I referenced this because something you wrote was, uh, quote, the continued inaction on part of the UN Security Council, the world body tasked with maintaining international peace and security, has bolstered the confidence of the Myanmar military and has entrenched impunity, end quote. Uh, this is definitely something I've noticed as well during the course of the year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the, what came to mind when I when when I read your comment, and I've also thought this before, strangely enough, it was uh, Trump's famous quip in the run-up to the election when he remarked he could kill someone on Fifth Avenue, shoot them dead, and not lose support. And the connection I'm making with, with this is that... Uh, um, there's there, there's a measure of, of impunity in being able to progress along a certain line where you just wonder what what does one have to do to lose whatever support that is and, and lose that momentum that that is propelling it forward and that that's what Trump himself was indicating was that he had so much support he can shoot someone dead in Times Square and he, he wouldn't lose it and people started to ask well what what could actually start to what, what could Trump do that would be too far so that's the question I'm wondering about the Burmese military what can they do that is too far what is a line beyond which they they cannot pass uh, that is that is a bridge too far and we saw this actually mm-hmm. this even in even in the early weeks of the protests we started seeing signs that said really really graphically and tragically how many dead bodies will it take for the UN to send peacekeeping mm. forces that mm-hmm. people were wondering mm-hmm. there, there was a, a, a terrible image of a, uh, or, or just devastating image of an old man holding a sign saying that if, if my death is what it will take for action to come, kill me now and, and let me stop the senseless carnage that's going to come after, mm-hmm. just take me if that's, if that's going to do it. And so I, I wonder what, uh, in looking at R2P and I understand the way we've defined R2P now, it's not, 
that it's this gradation where where there's different levels of different kinds of action and and I think you're you're pointing to a, a wider and more nuanced definition than how it's typically used in, in Myanmar, which was really really some kind of intervention coming and saving them. But um, what uh, in terms of that more um, the, uh, the the bolder definition of R2P. Uh, do you have any thought as to knowing the international community better than I do, and probably better than many of the, the listeners, um, given your 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 work in DC and your advocacy? Do you have any idea or guess about what lines the Tatmadaw would would ultimately cross that would eventually be too far? that it would propel a further action. I mean, we've, we've seen them burn people alive. We've seen them mm-hmm. bomb indiscriminately. We've seen mm-hmm. them commit ma- mass rape and torture. Mm-hmm. We've seen them target doctors and journalists and, and arrest with impunity. We, we, we've seen such an egregious series of acts, and those acts are getting ramped up and ramped up and ramped up. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a bridge that's too far that, um, that, that would propel the international community into a greater action concerning RTP? Mm. That's really that's I think that's really interesting analysis. I had not thought of you know the connection with that Trump quote and in the Tatmada, um, but you know on first glance I think you're, I think that's pretty spot on, um, and you know I, you know my first thought is you know I really don't I don't know what the line is. I mean I feel like the Tatmada has crossed every line you know possible. I mean. I think of, you know, two, you know, main, you know, big examples that I think of, of, you know, specific attacks. You know, I think of Thantlong and in Chin State. I think the last tally has been, you know, 25 separate airstrikes. I think it, it might be more by now, but I think I saw, I think the number was 25, according to Myanmar Witness. Um, and, you know, I think of the, the, the Christmas Eve massacre where, um, uh, I, I'll be honest, I, I don't recall the exact number, but with where, you know, civilians, including children, including Save the Children staffers were, you know, as you noted, they were, um, you know, killed and burned. And, you know, if that isn't what it takes to spur the international community to respond, then, you know, what, what I think, I mean... It, I don't know what, what it would take, but I think that it, it, I think what it would take is, I think it's a matter of, you know, when does this start to become more of a, you know, regional or, or sadly, I, I, I do think that it, it, the, the line might be, you know, when does this become something that impacts more than, you know, when it, when it, when it affects more than the people within Myanmar's borders. And I think that is, and I think that's, you know, I think that's extremely unfortunate that, that, it, that, you know, that is, you know, that, that, that might be the line at this point, you know, I would think the line, I mean, just for the record, I mean, I think the line should, was, should have been, I mean, it, like I said, they've. I feel like they've crossed every line in the book at this point. You know, if not, you know, then, then if not now, then when? Um, but I think, you know, based on you know the international community's response so far, I think it will be when, you know, since we haven't crossed the line yet, I think the line must then be 
when is this going to, you know, start impacting, you know, other countries more? And, you know, we've seen, you know, more, you know, refugees fleeing over the border into India, into, you know, more into, into Thailand, for instance. So, you know, perhaps the line then, you know, if it isn't all of the atrocities that the military has perpetrated so far, then, which, you know, really is, it's only impacting, you know, Myanmar's people, then I feel like the line must be, you know, th- perhaps the line for the international community will be when it really starts to impact, impact them. And I think that's really unfortunate that that might be the mentality that, that the international community has adopted here. But, you know, when it, you know, as you said, you know, Myanmar's on the brink of, of a civil war, um, you know, in you. UN officials have have been saying that as well that Myanmar is on the brink of civil war and you know I think the numbers of of displace you know internal displacement are you know of course increasing I think the latest tallies are you know over 440,000 people have been displaced since the coup that's just since the coup there are over 800,000 people internally displaced in Myanmar in general and I think, you know, as violence continues to escalate, there's a really great risk that this will turn into, um, in addition to what it is now, I think it will, you know, the, I think the, uh, it'll be an increasingly urgent refugee crisis. It's already a very urgent refugee crisis, but I think that as more, you know, as re- more people, you know, flee Myanmar, flee violence in Myanmar to other countries, then perhaps that would be, um, the final straw for the international community. Um, that is my, that's my guess. Um, that's my, that's my analysis. Um, but, you know, I think it's really unfortunate that, you know, if that is the case, um, then I think it's unfortunate that, you know, the international community would have, you know, waited until it, you know, the crisis really started to affect affect them and be, you know, an inconvenience for them, that that's when they decided to, to, you know, take more of a substantial, to, to have more of a substantial response. Um, I hope that's not true. I hope that's not the case. Um, but, you know, based on the, you know, lack of response so far, I, you know, I feel like that would be perhaps the next line that the Tatmada could, could cross um, that, that really impacts the the international community more um but then i think just broadly the last thing i'll say before i I wrap up on this point is you know when it comes to atrocity prevention in general prevention is always cheaper than just from a pure purely looking at this you know black and white you know financial point of view um Mm. prevention is always cheaper than response but we're past that, you know, we can, we can work to prevent, you know, further atrocities. And that's what we're, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what other, you know, human rights, you know, advocates are trying to do, but you know, the international community, I mean, we're at the point of, you know, it's at the point of response. I mean, it's past the point of prevention, you know, atrocities are ongoing, you know, obviously we're, you know, like I said, working to prevent further atrocities, but, you know, prevention is, you know, a, a cheaper option. It's an easier option than waiting for it to get to the point that it is now. Um, I hope that I hope that's clear. Uh, I hope that makes sense. 
Yeah, 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 definitely does. And I, I want to turn back to United Nations again. Um, you had referenced elsewhere that the UN Security Council has met nine times since the coup, and it's issued six statements, but it's taken exactly zero substantive actions. Why do you think this is the case? We, we talked a bit before about why the UK is not uh, having more transparency and you gave some theories and why things are all behind closed doors and there's not a veto vote. This is a slightly different angle mm-hmm. on that question and looking at uh, not why they're doing what they're doing openly or closed or taking, taking uh, bringing things to action or not, but just looking at why there, uh, there, there continues to be there, there, there are these meetings taking place, whether they're closed or open. There's statements that are that are coming out, but even there, there's not any kind of substantive action, even mm-hmm. on minimal level, even on the lowest basic level. We're talking about the third wave of COVID crashing through. We're talking about IDPs and refugees. We're talking about it spilling over into other countries and, and on and on. That that there there hasn't even been a baseline of mm-hmm. a, a minimal action taken to any degree. So why do you think that is? Okay. Um, I mean, I think that's you know that's a great point when when you're looking at you know what has the Security Council done so far? They've met privately and they've put out statements. Um, and pretty pretty tepid statements at at that, um, and I guess I don't know if this this might be you know similar to my previous response, but you know at least in terms of you know why hasn't the security council done anything more you know substantial you know what they could do like 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 imposing an arms embargo or sanctions um, you know things with um, you know teeth you know, like the, the stick type of responses um, that, you know, only the international, that only the Security Council can do um, as, you know, a, as an international body. Um, I think it does come down to, um, you know, deadlock among Security Council members to, to do anything um, truly effective. Mm. So let's turn our attention now to the UN's Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar, also known as Double I Double M. This was founded in 2018. Can you tell us more about this unit? Yeah, um, I think I think it's important to start in 2017, actually, when the, the Human Rights Council Council established a fact finding mission on Myanmar. So another investigative mechanism to to look into human rights abuses in in Myanmar, and then. You know, they issued their report, and then it kind of essentially turned into, or was kind of replaced by the the double I double M in in twenty nineteen, and the double I double M is doing, you know, really, I think they're doing really great work at, you know, collecting and preserving evidence of, you know, the the human rights abuses that the Tatmadaw is is perpetrating. Um, they look into, they investigate abuses that have been. Con- that have been perpetrated since 2011. Um, so since 2011 up until, you know, the present. So they're still, they're investigating, you know, ongoing crimes as well, um, which is really important that, you know, they can, that there isn't like a, a temporal limit on, on that, on their, I guess their mandate, you know, going forward. Um, you know, the, the limit is, you know, back until 2011, but they can, they are, you know, investigating Crimes that the, the the military has has committed since the coup and, and and is you know 
con- continuing to commit. Um, and you know, the the IIM fits into a, I think a, it's good to think about it within the the broader context of you know justice and accountability when it it comes to to Myanmar. Um, and you know, other you know noteworthy things. Perhaps the most one of the most noteworthy you know other developments there is in 2019 when when the Gambia filed. You no, know, of course, when the Gambia filed an ICJ case, you know, a case at the International um, Court of Justice against Myanmar for for violating the 1948 Genocide Convention um, for you know the genocide that the, the military committed against the Rohingya in in 2017, and that is you know a very a very important case that's you know of course ongoing um, with. Uh, you know, hearings actually taking place, you know, this week as we as we record this podcast um, at the Hague. Um, but I think, in in terms of you know justice and accountability, um, you know, the the M is is really important just for, like I said, collecting evidence of you know what what crimes has has the military perpetrated, and that really helps for you know achieving accountability and and for you know achieving justice um and i think the last thing that i want to note um before before i turn it back to you in terms of you know justice and accountability is you know that too is an integral part of the responsibility to protect and it's a really important component of of the work that we do at the global center is you know looking to champion justice and and accountability and and that's for a few reasons i mean on the one hand you know of course you know victims and survivors they they deserve justice they deserve you know reparations they deserve to um have their you know what what happened to them you know they deserve the you know the the atrocities to be you know cemented in in a historical record through, you know, through a trial. Um, and more than that, you know, trials and, and, you know, accountability mechanisms, which to go back to your question, the double I double M of, you know, you know, fits within, um, these, you know, justice and accountability is a really important component of atrocity prevention. You know, one important, you know, one atrocity risk is, you know, atrocities are more likely to happen where, you know, they've happened before, you know, if you have, you know, a resurgence in violence and a way to combat or a way to, to, to prevent, you know, prevention, a way to prevent um, a resurgence in violence and a return to of atrocity crimes is through accountability. And, you know, one main, one main reason there is because, you know, if perpetrators are held accountable, then, you know, they realize, oh, there are actually, you know, consequences if, if I do, if I, if I commit these crimes. Um, but there has been, you know, as you referenced, there is entrenched impunity that, that the military continues to, to enjoy. Um, and, you know, part of that, I think, could be, is, you know, because, you know, these accountability mechanisms take a very long time. And, you know, it would have been, obviously would have been great if, you know, they had been, you know, say they, if they had started earlier. Um, but... You know, they, they started when they started and, you know, they're doing really important work now to, to hold, um, 
you know, the Tatmada and, and other people, um, and other actors, you know, uh, accountable for um, the, at least in, in terms of the ICJ case, the 2017 genocide against the Rohingya. But, you know, that could lay the groundwork for, you know, a, a broader accountability for, you know, all of, uh, all, you know, everyone in, in, in Myanmar who has, um, you know, suffered and from, you know, suffered at the hands of, of the military. Yeah, I'm glad you referenced that case uh, because I've also read that the UN Human Rights Council's fact-finding mission, it concluded that men online should have been prosecuted for crimes against humanity, not just against Rohingya, but uh, throughout yes. Rakhine, Kachin, and Shan State. Yes. And, that he, and they concluded that, quote, he continues to harbor genocidal intent mm-hmm. towards the Rohingya. So it strikes me that if this was the official findings in 2018 and nothing came of it, it does feel increasingly hopeless to await for any kind of response in 2022. Uh, Of course, this might be a case of an outsider who is looking for bold uh, evidence of of progress being taken place and of rights being wrong and and justice can work a, a slower, more nuanced way that those of us not in the inner loop can not necessarily have the patience or appreciation for. Uh, so I say that with with that understanding as well. But what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I, I think that's you know I think that's a good point. I think um, I think one. I think I just want to highlight you know, the significance of the ICJ case, you know, again, as a really important step in, in working toward, you know, justice in, in that case. And I think, you know, the fact, you know, the Gambia, which is, you know, a pretty small country, um, is the case, is the country that, you know, brought this against Myanmar really demonstrates that, you know, it doesn't matter what, you know, what, you know, who, what, how you know big the country is or how much clout you know they have in the international system um but you know that really any country can can work to you know ensure that you know other you know perpetrators of atrocity crimes are held accountable um i think that you know yeah not all of the not all of the you know routes for for justice have been explored fully um the case you know the security council i think still should you know one of the things that you know another thing that we you know we call for is for the security council to refer the situation to to the icc for the icc to you know to to hold um you know perpetrators accountable as well um but i think that you know i think that you know it isn't all you know yeah I think that there, there could be more done, but I think that we also should highlight, you know, the, the positive developments as, as well. And I think one, one thing that I do want to highlight, you know, again, in terms of, you know, international justice that, you know, shows that there is, you know, there are being positive developments and it's not all a complete failure. Um, because it isn't all a complete failure, is, you know, back in 2021, I think in, in the fall of, of 2021, um, Argentina's judiciary announced that they would be um, under under the principle of universal jurisdiction, um, announced that they would be um, opening a case 
um, against senior senior officials from Myanmar who are responsible for for the the, the Rohingya genocide. Um, and you know, it is those those bold that bold. Yeah, you know, I think it's those bold moves. It's those creative moves for um, to to achieve to to work toward you know justice that is. Um, I think we, you know, should, you know, celebrate alongside, you know, recognizing, you know, other failures of the international community, because that is, you know, that is a really positive de- development against a backdrop of a lot of failures um, in terms of international justice, in addition to the many other facets of, of this crisis. Um, mm, right. Um, you, you've written that the UN's IIIM, um, the Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar, has collected evidence that, quote, if substantiated, would amount to crimes against humanity, end quote. Mm-hmm. This is an extremely serious charge that mm-hmm. could potentially tip the scales of the international response. But what is standing in the way of them being able to, to substantiate it? Um. Well, it's the fact that, you know, the double isn't, you know, a body that can, you know, it's not a court um, that can, you know, prove or can, that can officially say, you know, crimes against humanity happened or, or genocide happened or war crimes happened. You know, that's just not how it, you know, kind of functions. It's an investigative mechanism. Um, so that would fall upon, you know, it falls upon a court to, to make that official determination. So whether it be the ICC or the ICJ or under the, the principle of universal jurisdiction, you know, a country like Argentina um, to, to investigate that. Um, so that's, you know, I guess what's, you know, kind of standing in, in the ways that that's not, you know, the, the, the function of, of the IIIM. Right, right. And let's move on now to talking about ASEAN. This is the Mm -hmm. organization consisting of 10 Southeast Asian nations and check in about their response or their lack of response. Yeah. You wrote, quote, there are serious doubts regarding the effectiveness and commitment of ASEAN to address Myanmar's human rights and humanitarian catastrophe, end quote. For those of us following the Myanmar situation, I can safely say that this is very much stating the obvious. Mm-hmm. The question is, is there anything that can be done about it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, just for background for listeners who might not, I guess, know, um, you know, the main or one of the main things that ASEAN has done in response to, to this crisis is, you know, what's called the five point consensus. Um, so, you know, five stipulations for, you know, that are, you know, supposed to guide ASEAN's response to, to the crisis. They have not been implemented um, effectively at all um, to, to state, which, and that's an understatement. Um, what, and I think, you know, just to context, contextualizing, you know, ASEAN's overall inaction in response to this is, you know, overall ASEAN is, you know, as a body is, you know, pretty silent and, and doesn't do much on, you know, human rights abuses in any of its countries, um, any of its member states. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's not, you know, unique to, to Myanmar that, 
and, and it's unfortunate that's the reality. Um, it's not unique to Myanmar that ASEAN has done so little um, in in response. So I think you know that context is you know important um, to when when it comes to you know thinking about how how ASEAN operates um, in terms of what they have done. Um, I think one of the main things, and I think this is, I think it's, you know, really important to, to highlight this is, you know, in their October summit, ASEAN, um, blocked the, the military from sending, um, a representative instead, in, instead, you know, extending an invitation to a non-political representative, um, Myanmar ended up not sending anyone, um, and the same thing, you know, the same circumstances for, uh, a February, um, it wasn't a summit, it was a, a retreat in, in Cambodia. Um, again, ASEAN, you know, blocked the military from sending, you know, a, a military, a political representative, instead um, extending an invitation to a non-political representative. Again, Myanmar didn't send anyone. Um, and, you know, that's very small in the grand scheme of things. That's very, you know, uh, that's, a, that's small. Um, but what it does do is, you know, it limits the or it, it prevents the military from you know getting the the legitimacy you know getting back to that that point of legitimacy you know it is a small way of, of preventing the, the the military from from obtaining the the legit, the international legitimacy that that it really it really desperately wants um so that is one positive thing i think that might be the main um you know positive thing that the, that ASEAN has done um, I hope they'll continue to, to do that. Um, and I think more broadly, um, what else ASEAN could do um, is I think that we won't really see um, if, you know, if history is any indicator, we won't see a response from ASEAN as an entity. We won't see, you know, an organizational response more than, you know, what we, we have seen, um, which, you know, among other things, they, they appointed, they've appointed, you know, an ASEAN envoy, um, to Myanmar to, to, I guess, kind of, you know, it could be, it's kind of comparable to the special envoy in Myanmar, um, the UN special envoy in Myanmar, they kind of operate, you know, similarly. Um, but I think, Beyond what what me what what ASEAN has done so far, you know, I don't think we'll see much more organizational response from from the body because you know historically the body has not you know operated in that way. And again, that goes back to my point on you know really you know pushing more for you know bilateral response in the absence of this you know multilateral um, you know engagement. And I think you know I think especially a more concerted, a more, you know, urgent, substantial response from ASEAN member states would go a long way um, because they are, you know, obviously they're Myanmar's neighbors. They are, you know, members of the same multilateral organization. And I think that would, you know, a more effective, you know, a more robust response from, ASEAN member states on a bilateral capacity would send a really important message to, to the Tatmadaw, um, whether that be, you know, that should include, you know, arms embargoes, even though, you know, even though technically, you know, it's those four countries that have sold arms to Myanmar since 
the coup, you know, the, no Southeast, no member of ASEAN has, has, you know, an arms embargo on, on Myanmar, um, has imposed an arms embargo on Myanmar. Um, and I think, you know, even though they, I don't think they're selling, you know, arms to Myanmar, just symbolically, that, that goes a long way. Um, and I think the same could be said for, you know, impo- for ASEAN member states imposing, you know, sanctions on those key industries, I think what goes a long way. Um, and it goes even further because they are Myanmar's regional neighbors. I think that that would, that would, I think that would be really, um, I think that, that that's really um, important. Mm, right. So changing tracks a little bit, I want to read a question verbatim that a listener from Myanmar sent in and get your take on what this person is asking. <clears throat> they say, uh, We can understand that UN forces are peacekeeping forces and do not have the capability to fully engage with Minam Lang's thugs as a frontal assault. However, will the UN force be able to come in as police to keep the stability once the PDF engages Minam Lang's thugs and frees the cities? Will UN forces be able to help the PDFs run POW camps and maintain civility? We believe we can fight and we can win the fight. We want the UN peacekeeping forces to join hands with us once we liberate the cities to maintain peace and stability. We will fight. Can you guys keep the peace? Mm. Um, thank you. Well, th- I, I, I should have said this earlier, but I do want to thank everyone who, who did submit questions um, I, to, to the podcast. You know, I, re- I, really, appreciate, um, I really appreciate the engagement. Um, on that particular point, um, you know, I really don't know. My my inclination would be, I, I don't know if that would be a likely response from the Security Council because the Security Council is, you know, the body that can impose those um, measures. You know, they're the body that decides whether, you know, where to send peacekeepers and, and the, you know, the extent of the mandate and all the details um, on that. And I, you know... If, if the Security Council can bear, can't, you know, even meet publicly on, on you know, Myanmar, I, I don't think they would, I think it's, you know, almost, in, you know, it's very, it's very unlikely that, that they would, you know, manage to, to send peacekeepers to, to Myanmar. Um, Right. Thanks for that. And I know these are these are sensitive topics and, and people writing and asking out of some desperation. Mm-hmm. And another kind of desperate request that we've heard, and, and maybe you can also break this down and explain it, we talked about arms embargoes and, mm-hmm. and the arms that have been going to, uh, to, to the military and that you've mentioned four countries that mm-hmm. have been guilty of selling arms to, to the Tamada even after the coup. Mm-hmm. There have been some from the country that have said, well, you know, if, if, if no one will come to help us, if we're completely alone, if R2P is a principle and not something people put into action, and, and I understand now that's not quite fair to say there's, um, there's, there's smaller and more nuanced degrees of R2P taking place. They're talking about the bolder actions they'd like to see. But uh, as the question goes, if, if we are on our own and we're, we have to, uh, protect ourselves and uh, and resist. 
why can't the international community at least allow us to receive defensive equipment such as mm. uh, bulletproof vests or or ways to or to to uh, or, or, or medicine even um, that that is able to get through. Uh, or even on a more bolder scale, weaponry. If uh, if if there is no arms embargo and the and countries are openly selling weaponry to the top of why can't the NUG or the PDFs or the EAOs? Why can't they then, if they if they're left to defend themselves because no one's helping, can they at least get the mechanism to defend themselves? This is another question that that I've heard repeatedly over the last few months. Mm-hmm. So how would you how would you take that one on? How would you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that specifically, to be honest. But um, in terms of, you know, I obviously understand, um, you know, where that question comes from. Um, I, I completely understand, you know, the logic uh, and, the, you know, the thinking that that goes into that. And like you said, I completely, you know, recognize and empathize with the fact that you know, so many of these questions are coming from a place of, you know, pure desperation and um, frustration with uh, an international community that has done so, so little in response. Um, But in terms of the question of, I I really don't, I'll I'll be honest, I don't, I don't first, it hasn't been, you know, that doesn't really, it hasn't been, you know, a topic that has come up um, in, you know, discussions with, with member states, I don't, I, again, I, I don't mean to, I don't want to, to sound like I'm shooting down these, you know, ideas. Um, and I hope, I, I, I hope it doesn't, you know, come across that, that way. Um, but I don't know if that, I don't think that it would be reasonable, um, that states would, would think it would be reasonable to, to provide, you know, arms for one thing. I think humanitarian aid is, is a, you know, another discussion entirely. Um, you know, I work with, you know, we don't work, the Global Center doesn't work directly on, you know, the nuances of, you know, supplying humanitarian aid to, to different, you know, to, to conflict zones. Um, but, so again, I, I can't answer super, you know, super, uh, you know, in a super detailed way on that. Um, but I do work with, you know, some other groups that, that do work on, you know, more on the, the humanitarian side of things. And, you know, they, I mean, part of the, you know, to state the obvious, I mean, a major hindrance is, you know, to, you know, human, to, you know, getting humanitarian aid into, to Myanmar is, you know, the military and, and how difficult, you know, the military is obviously, you know, to work with and, and the, un, you know, unwillingness to, to, or perhaps it, maybe inflexibility is, is a better term to, um, you know, permit, you know, humanitarian aid and, you know, sufficient, um, you know, to, to permit sufficient humanitarian aid. You know, I think of, you know, air, air you know, a lot of times with, you know, airstrikes on, on, on cities, a lot of times that comes with, you know, blockades that prevents the, or prevents civilians from, from fleeing the city. And it also prevents humanitarian, you know, actors from, from entering and, and providing aid that, you know, that's desperately needed. Um, so I think that is, you know, just to highlight, you know, I guess perhaps stating the obvious that, you know, 
I think that is the main, uh, the main, you know, block, um, to, you know, providing, you know, sufficient humanitarian aid. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think of, you know, refugee camps in, in Bangladesh, refugee camps in, in Thailand. And, you know, since the coup, a lot of countries have withdrawn or re- with reduced the, the aid that they provide to these, these camps. And I, I think that, you know, I, I think, I mean, to put it simply, uh, that's, I think that's the wrong move. Um, you know, the state should continue to, you know, provide, you know, to help fund and provide, you know, resources and, and funds to, to help these, um, you know, to these, you know, refugee camps, um, you know, especially, you know, conditions in, in these refugee camps, especially in, in, you know, Bangladesh, for instance, are, are, you know, terrible, I mean, terrible conditions. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, again, the, the international community could, could be doing much more to, um, you know, improve the conditions for, for refugees, you know, especially considering how, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the flow of refugees is only, it's only going to increase, um, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think more could be done to, you know, um, you know, in preparation for, for, um, that, you know, kind of inevitable, um, result. Right, right. Thanks for that. I, I have one final question here, and I we've we've looked at the situation of R two P from a number of uh, different angles, a number of different actors, and I, I want to end on looking at the view from the ground, um, from more normal people engaged in this, and what they might do within the, docu- the democracy movement or supporters of that. You've written quote. The previously frequent invocations of R2P have waned amongst Myanmar's protesters, perhaps because they fell upon seemingly indifferent ears. Mm-hmm. Norms don't maintain their in- international weight through rhetoric alone. Mm-hmm. R2P, like all international norms, has no independent volition or agency. It will not succeed because of its intellectual purity or fail because of faults in its academic design. The principle of R2P will only ever be as effective as practitioners make it. Mm-hmm. End quote. And I should say this is something you've also referenced uh, in in this talk mm-hmm. uh, today. You've you've mm-hmm. referenced several times that it's only as effective as yeah. practitioners make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, those practitioners we've looked at as being the international community, the mm-hmm. uh, different uh, organizations of nations. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you think protesters on the ground or activists on the ground can do to make their voices heard or bring about RTP? Uh, within Myanmar, or for that matter, those that uh, are listening to this now that are not uh, don't necessarily have any power in their own life or influence are are simply listening to this with with goodwill and, and well wishing. Mm-hmm. Either those on the ground in Myanmar or those allies on the ground uh, outside of the country, living in relative safety, but concerned about this. Is is there anything that us little people can do to support mm-hmm. this, or is it really just kind of waiting around for the big actors to get their act together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think that's a really important, uh, you know, question. I think, you know, 
broadly, you know, approaching this question broadly at first, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, conflict prevention and, and responding to conflict and atrocity prevention, it's so important to really center the voices of the people on the ground and to, you know, center those experiences and listen to, you know, what they want and what their concerns are. Um, because they're the ones who obviously are, you know, experiencing the, the instability and the conflict and the violence and the atrocities. And they're the ones who will, you know, be experiencing whatever the aftermath is of the international communities, whatever, you know, policies, you know, countries impose or, you know, bodies impose or whatever they don't impose and whatever they don't do. Um, so it's really, I think, you know, you know, I want to, you know, highlight how important it is to center, um, those, those voices, um, of, you know, people on the ground and, you know, people who, who come from these communities, people on the ground and also people from, from the diaspora, um, who either perhaps, you know, perhaps fled, you know, violence years ago, perhaps recently, perhaps they still have family members in, in Myanmar or in refugee camps, um, you know, it's so important to, to really center those, those voices. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, you know, the Global Center tries to do when it comes to Myanmar and, you know, all the country situations that we work on. And, you know, it's something that a lot of our, you know, partner organizations really, um, you know, try to emphasize as well. Um, and I think, you know, just going off of that, you know, in some ways, when you think, uh, you know, I think that the diaspora plays, you know, an especially important role here for a couple of reasons, you know, obviously, you know, people on the ground are, at, you know, facing, you know, a risk of atrocities that is only increasing. Um, and there really, there is, truly, there is danger in, um, you know, you know, speaking out or, say you're, you know, gonna, you know, being, for instance, you know, we, the recent phenomenon of, you know, citizen, citizens journalists, um, as, you know, the, the military, you know, really clamps down on press freedom. I mean, of course, you know, in immense courage in, in, in what, you know, protesters and, and, and journalists and everyone is doing, um, in Myanmar, um, to, to, you know, thwart the, the Tatmada, um, but of course that comes with, you know, risks. The diaspora, however, you know, faces, you know, less risks in, in speaking out. And, you know, I think, and, you know, calling for, you know, you know action from, from the international community. And so I think it's, you know, voices on the ground and, you know, uh, you know, vo you know, really, um, you know, um, of course, you know, centering, um, you know, voices of affected people in general. Um, but I think especially in, you know, in the case of Myanmar, I think the diaspora plays, you know, a really important role. And they have been, you know, I, and I, I don't mean, I, I don't mean to imply that, you know, they haven't been, um, you know, measuring up to that. They 1000% have been, and they have been, you know, the, the, you know, the diaspora has, um, you know, is, very vocal and um, works, you know, incredibly, incredibly hard to to spur, 
you know, effective international response. And it, it's, you know, humbling to, 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 to witness it and to work with, you know, both members of the diaspora and also people who are, you know, still on the ground in, in Myanmar. It's um, a humbling experience to, to work with them and, you know, an honor to work with them. And I think, you know, that's what is, you know, if, if there's like one last, like a, a final, you know, note to, to leave on is really just to drive home how important it is to, for, you know, policymakers to, to listen to people who are, you know, affected by this violence, whether they are on the ground or, or in the diaspora or, you know, wherever they may be. Those are the perspectives that should be front and center. Those are the people that should be, you know, in the room, um, whether it's, you know, briefing the security council or briefing, you know, whoever, you know, those are the voices that, that need to be, you know, amplified. And, you know, I think that's one of the roles, one of the jobs that, that I, you know, try to, you know, do and the Global Center tries to do is, is, you know, being, you know, a mechanism to, to amplify those voices and to, you know, bridge the gap between, you know, people on the ground, people who are affected by these, you know, most affected by, by these crimes to the people who can, you know, the policymakers who can actually, you know, do something about it. Um, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. I, I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate the answer to this one and to the overall discussion. I think it's been quite informative, at least for me, I'm sure for many listeners, this is a really important topic and, and the work that you're doing has never had a greater test case playing out in front of us in real time than, than Myanmar. So your your work uh, is right in, in the thick of it with everything. So I, uh, and I think uh, information is power. It's important for all of mm-hmm. us that care about this and that are affected to hear someone on the inside of one issue and better understand it from uh, in, in more depth than just the the major talking points that, that it's hit. So, uh, so I really appreciate that. And thanks so much for coming on here and sharing your knowledge and your activism as well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come to come on your, your podcast and to speak about, you know, R2PN and me and Mary. Really, I really appreciate the opportunity. Many listeners know that in addition to running these podcast episodes, we also run a nonprofit, Better Burma, which carries out humanitarian projects across Myanmar. While we regularly post about current needs and proposals from groups on the ground, we also handle emergency requests, often in matters that are quite literally life or death. When those urgent requests come in, we have no time to conduct targeted fundraisers, as these funds are often needed within hours. So please consider helping us maintain this emergency fund. We want to stress that literally any amount that you give allows us to respond more flexibly and effectively when disaster strikes. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, 
the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Yeah.